0: Hello, Valeria, (laughs) we are talking to Valeria Bulo, who is an experienced production executive and production consultant with a strong passion for mental well-being and inclusion in the TV and film industry, 16 year history and a wide range of high level productions, which we will find out more later. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. It's taken a while, hasn't it? We first met, we were just saying in lockdown on an app whose name we can't remember (laughs) yes
1: it'll probably come to us halfway through this podcast clubhouse Uh, clubhouse that's it it. that's it clubhouse clubhouse i'd actually was thinking of house party initially which i think was the first app that people got really into in the first lockdown so (laughs) we progressed to clubhouse yeah
0: so let's start by just saying how did you get into this
1: wonderful industry tell us a bit about your story um so I uh came into the industry a little bit later in life so I was I had studied languages and was working as an interpreter and I decided I wanted to work in film and television so I decided to go the academic route and got back into studying um which was great, um, but I had already done a degree and this was a second degree. And then I realized rather quickly when I moved to London that actually I should have just come to London and tried to get a job. And uh, although the course was brilliant, um, you know, I could critique the lighting of the third man, but I had no idea how to kind of work practically in production. So I moved to London in 2006 And I quite literally began knocking on doors because it was, you know, there was no, I mean, the internet existed, thank God. I'm not that old, but (laughs) there was no ways of getting work other than, you know, cold calling and meeting people for coffees. Um, So what was your first job, your very first job in the industry? My very first job was working uh, as a producer's assistant for uh, a Harold Pinter play that they were putting with, the late Harold Pinter himself they were putting into film and um, it was definitely a baptism of fire um, although I'm a huge Harold Pinter fan he was um, quite a complex individual um, and it was with a big heavyweight cast Penelope Wilton, Colin Firth, Sophia Conado Michael Gambon wow. so it was with all these huge actors um, and also I had just moved to London so I was, you know, living the London life, working in Soho, staying out till all hours and kind of rocking up at work. But I, you know, I worked, I waited tables, I worked in bars, kind of waiting for the phone to ring. It took me a long time to get that first break.
0: But what an amazing first job. I mean, what did you learn from that?
1: I mean, I, I learned a lot of really tough lessons on that job. Um, and I think when I look back now and I think of the industry where I cut my teeth, I think that's where I met a lot of those first initial toxic working environments, not specifically in that job, but in 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 many others, that was the start of it. You know, this kind of culture of having... completely sacrifice yourself um, in in honor or in for the sake of the job you know you would do anything you know that kind of line from um um the devil wears prada you know a thousand girls would kill for this job and um i was very quickly reminded of that because i was you know still having a bit of a life like i was saying you know i was coming in there was people that i had worked with that sort of reminded me quickly that you know you kind of weren't allowed to have a life um and how did you feel about that when you were
0: younger because you stayed in
1: i yeah I, i i believed it i was full of passion and drive and you know i realized fairly quickly that it was films that i wanted to work on um i sort of prior to that kind of film job i had done you know i had been in london for two years prior to that and you know, I would take anything, any job that was going. I did a ton of free work, of course, um, which I don't condone in the slightest anymore, um, because I was really kind of struggling to make ends meet. I was working in sort of corporate film as well, which was, you know, a lot more lucrative, and I worked with a lot of great people, but. Um, yeah, it was films that I wanted to work on. And I quite quickly adapted to that and thought, yeah, absolutely. I've got to give everything up. But when you have a lot of energy, I guess you're younger and you don't have anything else other than, I guess, your group of friends. It was very easy to make sacrifices then.
0: So why was it that you chose drama and in particular features to focus on? What was it about
1: that? Um, <clears throat> I mean, on a really sort of, you know, kind of if I dig deep down inside and I think about where my passion lies it was that the film that really inspired me was a fantastic film it was a documentary called dark days done by mark singer he was a model an english model who went to live in new york and had never picked up a movie camera before and made this incredible documentary with some homeless people on the abandoned and track lines of penn station Um, and he said, if I ever win anything, um, I'm going to give all that money to you guys and get you off the streets. And that's exactly what happened. DJ Shadow did the soundtrack for it. It's an incredibly intimate, uh, documentary and it just blew me away. It changed my life. And I thought, okay, that's, that's where I want to be. I want to be behind the scenes, putting all the pieces together. It's, it took me a while to figure out it was production, but that's where I knew I wanted to work.
0: But you were driven to drama more than documentary. Yeah,
1: that- yeah, yeah. That's a really good observation. Absolutely. Um, it was just when I started sort of here working on various, I mean, there was lots of other films that I became, you know, I was a big Christopher Nolan fan in university, um, which was one of my first uh, experiences as well. After that, I managed to work on a film of his. It was just, I really loved the idea of being part of this kind of huge project and getting and being part of that chain um, I wasn't really interested in being the kind of creative force as such or the center of attention being in front of the camera um, it was you know when I feel there's a lot of creativity in production as well you know it's not just in yeah. front of the camera or direct, directing or you know one of the crafts
0: So tell us a bit about the next stage of your journey through some of those
1: amazing dramas you worked on, just maybe roll them up the big list. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, I mentioned Christopher Nolan. I mean, I had gone on because of my passion in documentaries. I still kept fingers in many, many pies. So I had um, managed to kind of carve quite a decent career out in corporate film and documentaries. I had just been in Central America in um, El Salvador, producing a documentary and I had come back to the UK and some of those people that I had sort of been, um, you know, I would say there's a fine line between stalking and being persevering, but as some of these people that I'd kind of hit up for work over the years, one of them got back in contact with me and said, look, I have um, this feature film, I'd love to get you involved. Um, I told her I'd, I was just back from uh, El Salvador and she said, oh, you won't be interested because it's just a production assistant position. Anyway, I per- persevered. I got the job. It was Christopher Nolan's uh, inception. Wow. It was one of the most exceptional experiences of my life. Obviously, I was a fantastic production assistant because I was so experienced, but it was um, very freeing because you don't have that level of responsibility that you have kind of at, at a more senior level.
0: Why was it so exceptional? What was it about that production? It
1: was a- an opportunity to really see a classical almost like a classical life lesson in traditional filmmaking he's a very traditional filmmaker uh warner brothers have these airplane hangers um uh out in the, i won't say where just in case they're still doing this <laughs> but they have these air, disused airplane hangers where he would build all of his sets so he still oh. had the sets from the batman films um you know, the for anybody who's seen Inception, The Spinning Room, you know, it was seeing the kind of special effects as opposed to relying just on CGI. I mean, it was absolutely incredible. Um, He's a very kind of uh, strict sort of um, almost Hitchcock style director. So, you know, he wears a suit on set. And even when we're in Morocco in 40 degree heat, you know, it was just very interesting and just exhilarating to be, a very close observer of all that. And I got to travel with them all to Paris and uh, Morocco. It was just a really phenomenal experience.
0: And so that was as as a production
1: assistant. And that, what did you go on to? So, yeah, so I took a step down, quite a significant step down. And then what that job did, it, it really kind of opened the floodgates. So at this stage, it was maybe, I don't know, five years. I'd been trying to kind of break in, even though I'd had that amazing... You know, opportunity with the Harold Pinter film was a long time before this other job came along, and so then I sort of broke the seal and got in with the team, and then I went on to work on the Guy Ritchie, Sherlock Holmes films, and Maleficent, and Snow White and the Huntsman, and um, Brian Singer's Jack and the Giant Slayer, and you know all these kind of enormous, big, big, big productions. And that went on for about maybe eight years um you know with lots of travel and and you know and that kind of going back to that level of sacrifice that sort of happened quite naturally because these jobs were so long and so intense and even though now we have this surge of you know we we don't have enough people to meet the demand of production you know again not to sound too old but in my experience in my day you know it was very much a feast or a famine so you know you do these big jobs and you try and stay on for as long long yeah, yeah that you would just you know would last for as long as as it could last and then sometimes I would have breaks of maybe eight months you know so back to the bar job um maybe some interpreting So I did that for about eight years. Um, And in between that, you know, I did quite a lot of independent film as well. You know, I worked, I did two Michael Winterbottom films. I did a couple of um, them. I did a Warp film. You know, there was a a bit mixed in with these kind of big big productions as well. Um, And then that was until I, about 11 years ago now, I did The Job That Broke Me which was uh, Fury Road, um, Mad Max, which was all the way over in Namibia and South Africa, so a beautiful part of the world. Um, and I think that was the beginning of my sort of well-being journey as such.
0: Right. So you obviously touched on that earlier, but why
1: did that particular job break you? Um, so there is sort of a whole kind of perfect storm of reasons why so I guess the kind of biggest catalyst for it was I had lost my best friend very very quickly to you know in a space of two weeks Um, uh, she died from liver cancer she had you know had been visiting me I was working on another film prior to that and um, you know what started as a tummy ache two weeks later she passed away very quickly Uh so and I was working on a, on a production at the time in the UK that, you know, I didn't have, even have a day off. So it was, you know, I was dealing with this sort of seismic, you know, process of somebody being very sick and also uh, which led to this big loss. And there was no, you know, the show must go on. You have to turn up to work. And even on the day of her funeral, you know, I was given this special dispensation to be able to fly for like a half day to be present at her funeral and then back in the office again but again I hadn't really sort of registered any of this and then this opportunity came up to go to Namibia and in the kind of state of mind that I was in I thought oh my god yes this is exactly what I need to get out of London you know just get as far away as possible from all of this so already the state of mind that I was in um kind of set me up for you know quite a fragile emotional state and the job although I met lots of wonderful friends and it was great was just very challenging you know like many projects it was very intense the hours were very long um I was very far away from home um I was in a hired in a capacity that I it was very difficult for me to gel with the existing team and it went on for a very, very long time. So I found the whole experience very, very intense. And now when I look back, I realize, you know, obviously I can see all the reasons why. But the sort of the real positive in that is there was an amazing American producer, um, a woman called Denise Denove, who's a very senior level producer for Warner Brothers. Who every night, so we would work these, you know, insane hours, like 7 a.m. in the office, you know, 9 p.m., 10 p.m. And, um, and you know, it was a huge project as well. Over a thousand crew, um, many people relocated from Australia with their families or, you know, South Africa, of course. And then there was the international crew. But she would make all of the production team get up from their desk every evening and go downstairs into a room. Where she would lead a guided meditation every night and of course we all rolled our eyes and thought it was the most ridiculous thing ever i can't believe she's making us get up from our desks but slowly but surely we all really embraced this incredible you know 20 minute brain gap feed oxygen to our minds and souls so much that um she recommended a couple of books and I mean it really really helped me center and deal with my grief at the time um and I got very much into meditation after that as a result Um, but after that experience I came back to the UK and said okay I need to learn how to do something else because I don't know if this is sustainable for me
0: Right. And what did you do next? Because that
1: is a very full on experience on many. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, we were away. There's people away on that job for two years, you know, and it was a small village and, you know, there were moments I was in this tiny trailer in the middle of the desert. And I could have been in a car park in Sainsbury's in East London. You know, it just, all I saw was the four walls of this um, trailer. Um, so I came back to the UK and I decided I was going to get into teaching. So I taught production for a year. So I took a break um, at film school. It was an amazing experience. Again, now when I look back at my career, everything kind of joins up. But at the time, everything felt very disjointed. So it was great to be around young people. It was great to you know be with the future filmmakers of you know tomorrow. Um, and it was just what I needed you know I really focused um, that was the year you know I bought my flats I, I just did a lot of again looking back I could see obviously I did a lot of therapy you know in dealing with the loss of my friend mm. I can tell that you know I just really threw myself into some self-care but I wasn't sort of conscious of what I was doing in a way, you know, it was more like, Oh, I need to, you know, stop feeling so awful and change what's making me feel so, so bad.
0: And what did that lead to? What sort of
1: change in your career? Well, interestingly enough, um, that led to, uh, a different approach to the industry so i was offered after a year of teaching i was offered the opportunity to um become initially a production uh, an internal production coordinator and which then led to become a production executive for an uh, in-house so it was you know the kind of um holy grail of freelancers um you know this kind of in-house role um, so it was for a small UK production company. Um, you know, I say small, I mean, it's quite significant. You know, they're, uh, the company responsible for, you know, Selma and Pride and Suffragett. So it was a really good time to join. There were films. Also, I had become quite, um, I guess, desensitized with the big, massive blockbuster productions. Right. I wondered whether... You know, there were films I would actually want to go and see. And why was I still, you know, why was I in this industry at all? Yeah. So it was wonderful to join an organisation that was sort of championing female talent or diverse female directors, you know, Gurinder Chadha, Amal Asante. Um, uh, it was just, a, it felt like a really meaningful time as well. Themes of, you know, LGBTQ plus films or... Um, Yeah, it was, um, it felt like a really good time. So I was in house for about six years. As
0: you know, this, um, I'm selected for BFI female founders. So what would you say is the impact on women compared to men with regard to mental health, well being and the issues we've been talking about?
1: Well, I think if we look, um, so first of all, to answer your question, absolutely, I do think women are affected hugely um, and also often um, overlooked for opportunities and therefore the impact that that has on mental health and well-being. Um, the fact if we even just look ex- exclusively at the Time's Up movement, the fact that it took the Time's Up movement to really significantly change The policies and ways in which we work within our industry, which we still haven't resolved in terms of bullying and harassment, but it took that length of time. However, many, uh, you know, I don't know whether we're in the hundreds yet, but at least, you know, 80, 90 years for things to change for women. So I do think you know, people from underrepresented groups are disproportionately affected uh, within the film and TV industries in terms of the impact on the mental health and women certainly fall within uh, that category. So I do think that women are affected hugely um, by becoming mothers. You know, we're on instantly pushed out of the industry and therefore, um, you know, have to leave and, uh, you know, the talent drain that happens with that. So I think there's many... Aspects to um, just being a woman in the industry that puts it at a disadvantage, and therefore it affects her mental health.
0: So, tell us a little bit about what you did to respond to the needs of women mothers in the industry.
1: So, <clears throat> fast forward to four years ago. Um, so, I went back to being a freelancer. Um, I then became a mom, and I became a mother a bit later in life like many women in the industry I was so focused on my career and I had also in the sort of lap kind of in that recent time just before I became a mum had been quite bullied quite badly within the industry Um, and then I became pregnant and I when I was kind of sort of looking at re-entering the industry I really felt pushed out I felt like there was no place for me Um, I also didn't really have any role models the only women that I knew who were mothers within the industry were very wealthy and therefore you know had maybe live in nannies or a family support network and I had neither you know both my partner and I um, are not not English and therefore it was like what do people like me do and so I thought you know at this stage I had also really over my time when I was working in house understood that I really wanted to do work that was more meaningful I want you know I had done a little bit uh, I had been a mentee myself but I'd also done a bit of mentoring myself I had done a few master classes for um, some new entrants that you know had come from diverse backgrounds so I sort of had a feeling that um, I wanted to kind of work where um, put my energy where it was sort of more meaningful. So then the pandemic happened. I had been offered a job and um, that dried up very quickly. The pandemic happened and I wanted to create a space for mothers working in the industry. So I set up a community peer support group for women working within the film industry, which is called Cinemamas. And, you know, during the pandemic, we ran a lot of workshops with coaches and therapists around confidence and imposter syndrome Um, but what became really evident having created this space was that like a lot of people but in particular maternal mental health but just that a lot of women and a lot of parents given the challenges that we were all dealing with homeschooling Those gendered roles, you know, it was a lot of the women that were having to do the homeschooling and the house cleaning and the cooking and the working if they still had a job. And so it became really evident um, the importance of mental health and well-being and creating a safe space for women to have that. Um, And so it it really became a a focus. um, And over the course, Of that time, you know, we supported a lot of women through that. Um, How to re-enter the industry, you know, post-pandemic, so how to network in a virtual world. Um, What was really fascinating, um, and, and that was my first sort of sense of it being a problem that wasn't just within women or just within parents, was that we would often have people join our online sessions who were neither parents or women. You know, we, I remember, and I always use him as an example because it was such an exceptional um, uh, contribution that he made. There was this young uh, cinematographer who said, you know, well, I'm not a parent but maybe one day I want to be and I'd love to sort of hear from the others in the room you know how you're doing it and he also said you know a lot of what you're talking about are things that we all suffer from like insecurity or lack of confidence and so on and so off the back of that experience um which is still running 3 years on we had our first in real life event on the 22nd of September of this year Um, we, uh, you know, um, offer uh, a jobs board, we promote job sharing, flexible working, you know, we've become sort of quite a a strong group in terms of also raising people's profiles. So there might be another peer group that wants, um, you know, a light shone on their work. So last month we did Camera Village, which is run by a group of mums who are camera operators the month before we did Trans on screen which is an organization run uh, by trans and non-binary um, filmmakers and industry professionals um, we you know cover all sorts of um, uh, groups and topics um, and also we give an opportunity to just for people to raise their profiles so you know you might be struggling to get work and you really just want to kind of get your profile out there or you've launched and yourself as a consultant you know we're there to do that and
0: do you think women particularly suffer with doing that which you know blowing their own trumpet or whatever, uh, or whatever yeah, expressions absolutely, people come absolutely
1: absolutely a hundred percent why do you um, think that is I mean it all keep, it all comes back to you know I, for me it's it's quite I find it almost like a trigger word but it all comes back to confidence and confidence means something different to everybody um it's something we all strive for so much but it's so abstract um I'm sure what confidence means to you means something completely different right. to me um you know, I always I have a friend who always says to me, well, what would a middle class white man say in this situation? You know, because <laughs> that's in our head the epitome of confidence, right? Because we just stop ourselves. You know, I have often stopped myself from applying for a job or going for something because I think I'm not trained enough. I'm not qualified enough. I need to do more of this or more of training. We're the ones that kind of go back and, you know, study. If you look at, you know, we mentioned imposter syndrome previously. If you look at the kind of traits of imposter syndrome there's a lot of this kind of overachieving um yeah. but for me it's that it's that kind of confidence the lack of confidence we feel like we're not good enough yeah. um, and then we undervalue ourselves a hundred percent
0: yeah so did that lead to the toolkit that you developed
1: absolutely so off the back of that kind of huge piece of work because also it's you know in in complete honesty you know I had lost all of my work I had been on maternity leave the year before I had just gone back into the industry I was working as a production consultant for a really cool indie production company and then it was you know I sort of felt like the pandemic took it all away I also wasn't financially independent because I had no income So I threw myself, it was such a a haven to be in this virtual world with all of these women that felt exactly like me. So off the back of that, I was offered the opportunity to um, be part of the whole picture programme. So the programme, so I was one of the respondents to uh, a groundbreaking piece of research that the film and TV charity carried out in 2019, which was called The Looking Glass report the looking glass report was a survey which was done nationally across the uk which essentially highlighted that people in film and tv were in the middle of a mental health crisis in response to that um with the support of funders so partners within the industry um the whole picture program was launched and as part of the whole picture program there were six strands of work and mine was one of those six strands which was the development and creation, co-creation. So it was all co-created with the industry, which sounds easy, but was very difficult, uh, of a toolkit to kind of change the ways that we work. So it was a two-year program. Um, It was, you know, uh, absolute, you know, hell of a ride um, in many, many ways positive, but also very, very challenging because of, scale of it I think we hadn't anticipated how big it was going to be you know this is one toolkit for the whole industry (laughs) (laughs) for TV for every genre and to have it all co-designed so that means that you're co-designed so created by the industry for the industry so you know hundreds of consultations um obviously a working group many many focus groups but also Um, the charity wanted a test-and-learn approach. So what I ran on top of that, because also bearing in mind I was a team of one, so it was just me, um, I ran 12 pilot productions to test and learn what we were coming up with. So to see, you know, we didn't want to wait the two years to see if the toolkit worked. We wanted to test it all the way along. So it was taking those learnings, putting them back into the process, and it was, you know, incredible. And now to sit back and see the impact that it's having and that it's had already is actually, I'm so proud of it. You know, it's so great to see. I mean, I can't take all of the credit, you know, the, it, it was made with the industry, so I can't take all of that credit. It was made so What do you think
0: is the biggest impact it's having that you're most proud of?
1: I think it's just opening people's minds to changing the way that we work. That is by far the biggest obstacle and the biggest impact because going back to that kind of first experience and you know my experience of the film industry, The sacrificing it all you know the no control over your life work-life balance doesn't exist you know what the example that I shared of losing my friend and not being able to kind of attend a funeral that is a common story missed birthdays weddings and unfortunately funerals that is the way that we are programmed to think that we have to work whereas actually that's completely outdated The stats have shown us that we are a broken industry as a result of that toxic approach. Therefore, making, implementing small changes can have the biggest impact. And it can be really small things, you know, having a mental health first aider on your team, knowing how to signpost, um, creating some boundaries, you know, not being available 24 seven, you know, I'm a parent, but I'm also a carer. I'm a carer for an elderly person. So for me, getting a WhatsApp message at like 11 o'clock at night, unless it's an emergency, that will trigger a huge amount of anxiety, because I will think something has happened. So setting you, some also, boundaries.
0: also important for us to set our own boundaries within that, and 100%. to learn that that's okay to do that. To
1: and having to unlearn. Because I've had to do a huge amount of unlearning as I've learned more about mental health and well-being and inclusion. I've had to unlearn those behaviors because we're sort of programmed in a way, well, this is how I deal with stress, or this is how I work under stress. So yes, absolutely. I'm still learning about personal boundaries, you know, and kind of how to set those. But I think there's really small things that we can do that really have a, a huge impact on the people that we work with in terms of you know I worked in production offices where even if you'd finished your work you would have to wait until you know the line producer would leave you know and yeah. that, that's yeah. crazy and then that, that level well, of presented and then get in the car and drive for two hours to get back home you yeah know.
0: that's exactly why I left a television company I can't mention
1: unfortunately we all have those horror stories don't
0: we yeah so you're now in the wellness and mental health space but could you see a time when you'd want to uh, get back into more production but on completely different terms do you think that would be feasible to enter you know mainstream film production or documentary production or tv production and to not have it take over your life now with the
1: experience you've got 100% well I'm still actively I mean I've just um, I mean I say produced sounds like a very strong word but um, I am definitely you know a producer on the project but I've produced a documentary with a friend for a trans football team in Cambodia it's a phenomenal story called uh, the Lotus Club so worth checking out Um, so I'm still passionate about following my you know internal passion of documentaries in my current role i also i am the conduit between production companies and their productions and their people to help with well-being and inclusion so i'm not having completely you know hung up that coat and said you know i no longer kind of work in that space Um, what working at the film and tv charity did was remind me uh, because from all of those conversations that I had with freelancers remind me why I got into the industry and you know it made me very hopeful that we can change the industry I mean it sounds very rose-tinted glasses but actually seeing the level of change now compared to three years ago pre-pandemic it's astonishing it's huge the progress there's still a long way to go
0: well, you should be really proud of the work you've done in that space it's been great talking to you if people want to find out more about how to get support and connect with your organizations and the toolkits where should, where's the best
1: place to find you all that information thank you um so cinemamas www.cinemamas.co.uk that's for anybody who wants to be part of our community we're also on social media so instagram and facebook Um, for anybody who's looking for for further mental health support well-being I would absolutely signpost them to the film and tv charity website there's a huge amount of support available for freelancers they also have a 24-hour support line 365 days of the year Um, so I would definitely kind of go there as your first port of call and they'll direct you to lots of different places
0: Well, thank you so much. It's been really great talking to you. And just to finish, if you had to give one piece of advice to women in the industry from what you've learned, what would you pass on?
1: I think Just believe in yourself. I know that sounds so cheesy, but believe in yourself because nobody else will, Um, you know, nobody else will give you that time if you don't. So I think, you know, surround yourself with self-care and really believe in yourself. Um, and if something's not working, it's okay to let it go. You know. Thank you. That was brilliant. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank-